Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking to Kirsty Sedgman about her new book, Locating the Audience, How People Found Value in National Theatre Wales. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Kirsty Sedgman, who is uh, a British Academy postdoctoral... Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking to Kirsty Sedgman about her new book, Locating the Audience, How People Found Value in National Theatre Wales. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Kirsty Sedgman, who is uh, a British Academy postdoctoral research fellow at uh, the University of Bristol. She's also a lecturer in the Theatre Studies Department um, at the University of Bristol. And we're going to be talking about a new book, Locating the Audience, How People Found Value in National Theatre Wales. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, this, I, I think, is is a really interesting and very useful book for a variety of reasons, particularly because it sits at the intersection of theory and practice around um, audiences, but sort of arts management and cultural policy more generally. So it'd be great to know uh, a little bit about where the book came from and the kind of um, the ideas that were the uh, the genesis for the book before we talk about the kind of uh, sub- substance um, within the text. So I wonder if you could say a bit about um, your sort of intellectual background and where the book has come from. Of course. Well, I came out of the Theatre Studies undergraduate BA at Birmingham, and it was a great course. I got a lot out of it. But there, we were very much taught um, to talk about the audience as if we thought what they were think we, we thought we knew what they were thinking and feeling when they left the theatre. And I went on then to do a creative writing master's at Warwick and read more books there about reception theory and spectatorship theory, <clears throat> sorry, which are about, I suppose, trying to construct a model of what a performance or a book or any piece of cultural text achieved in the absence of um, contrary opinions. So when I started applying for PhDs, I was quite fixated on going down that track, trying to think about the performative potentials of theatre. And then, quite by chance, I met my my 2B supervisor, Martin Barker at Aberystwyth University, who is uh, one of the world-leading scholars in audience research, and he asked me a question. He asked me, as part of this research, looking at theatre, are you planning to talk to audiences? And I'd said, I said no, which had previously been the right reaction. And then he asked me another question, why not? And I didn't have a good answer for him. And I still don't. 
And I suppose what I quite quickly realised after meeting Martin is that there's this very rich tradition of audience studies, but predominantly in the area of film and TV. And very little of that has been applied to theatre. So that's the partial gap that I'm seeking to fill with my research. Um, so the book grew out of my PhD work, which was studying audiences of then the brand new National Theatre Wales they set up. They launched in 2009, which is when I started. And at the same time, Helen Freshwater brought out a really influential and great book, Theatre and Audience, which I've seen totally as a call to arms, because that book said we need to be doing audience research, we need to be talking to audiences, to different people about what they get out of their theatrical encounters. Yeah, because I, I get a sense of, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sort of caricature your position, but I get a sense of frustration with um, those uh, positions in the arts that kind of take audiences as basically a bit of a homogenous mass and if they react badly or if somehow they're disinterested or indeed they don't want to come to particular cultural uh, activities, then they're at fault. There's something, you know, that uh, there's a problem and either they're kind of ignorant or uh, somehow there's some kind of deficit within them that needs correcting. Yes. And then um, we've got the um, the book by Belfiore and Bennett, the social impact of the arts, which was incredibly useful for me because it sets out their intellectual history, what they call the twin, narr the twin narratives of the ligament, the sense that the arts are under threat and um, that we need to band together and support them, and transformation, the sense that the arts do good things with and for people. And what has inspired me about the cultural value projects and... Um, and um, I think that's really at the heart of my book, is the sense that we need to understand how people are arriving at these value judgments instead of making assumptions about the type of people who go and who don't go. Well, one way of kind of unpacking this, I think, might be to ask you quite a deceptively simple question, which is, so, so what is an audience then? What are we actually talking about when we talk about audiences? That is a great question, and particularly so because we know that all the terms that we use to describe groups of people together are loaded with value judgments. We've got participant, spectator, witness, crowd. And I've chosen to talk about audiences, really, I think, for two reasons. So the first is I want to make clear that my work it's not standing on its own. There are some people, actually a growing body of people within theatre studies who are adopting these kind of empirical methods. Um, Matthew Reason is one great example. John Tulloch, his work as well, was very influential for me. But by and large, there's a strong contingent of audience studies out there in film and TV and media studies. And I'm aligning what I'm doing absolutely with that tradition. And also, there is this tendency within theatre studies to use the word audience as if, as you said, we know who they are, what they want and what they don't want. And really, we know what's good for them or what's best for them and how they should respond. So 
I suppose what I'm trying to do here is to, in some way, reclaim that word audience. And at the same time, I'm hoping to broaden it. Um, so I'm seeing a musing audience, even when I'm talking about more participatory, immersive, intimate forms of performance where the spectator is drawn into the action and becomes, to some extent, a, a co-maker of the, word, uh, the work or a participant. I'm using audience to talk about these people too. And also, I think it's really important to realise that we don't just become an audience when that metaphorical curtain rises, and we don't stop being an audience when it falls again. We're an audience beforehand, all of us, in the, the days, weeks, months, years leading up to an event because of what we know about it in terms of the, those pre-circulating, pre-figuring materials. So, for example, I haven't seen Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the play, but I still, in some ways, feel that I'm an audience of that play because we're able to read the scripts, we're seeing um, the publicity material way beforehand, and we're seeing discourses unfold on Twitter. In some way, I feel I'm able to tap into that event, and I'm interested in how audience can spill out past its own borders. The, the other thing that kind of frames the book beyond, I suppose, the question of what is an audience is how to study it. And I think this is where the book fits within that um, intersection of um, questions of theory, but then the practice of, of understanding the audience. So what are the kind of, I suppose, methods or, or modes of study that allow us to both understand, construct, make visible um, a particular audience? Well, in theatre studies particularly, there is a wonderfully rich and long tradition of spectatorship research, which very often um, will study a performance looking for its potentials, its performative possibilities, so the places that it could have gone, the kinds of invitations it extends to audiences, and then to suggest why these are important beyond theatre. And what I'm doing uh, in suggesting that we should talk to audiences is absolutely not intended to invalidate that tradition. Similarly, there is a growing um, parallel tradition, I'd say, of neuroaesthetic research, cognitive kinesthetic response. Uh, Bruce Konecki's work is a really good example of that. But what we often find is that there is a tendency to hierarchise knowledge in these kind of discourses to suggest that that um, the neuroaesthetic approach is able to find out better or perhaps is more qualified to allow us to produce knowledge about audiences. And what I've been trying to argue is actually the methods that we use are naturally going to be able to draw out only certain kinds of information and only in certain ways. And in empirical research, when you're actually um, going to audiences, talking to them, drawing out their responses, of course you have to weigh their responses against the fact that they're going to be affected by your presence as a researcher. And there are a huge number of ethical, epistemological, methodological questions and difficulties associated with that that I don't have time to go into here, and I think I've probably bored the listener. But what's really important to know is that when we're talking to audiences, we're drawing out different kinds of knowledge, knowledge that we're not able to capture by other means. 
And what I'm interested in doing is mapping how diverse audiences, different people talking from different orientations and subject positions coming from different backgrounds are finding meaning and value in theatrical events. So I'm interested not in reducing the complexity by getting audiences to talk about really complex experiences and, and by putting them into words, I suppose, diluting them or fixing them. I think instead that by paying attention not just to what people are saying, but to how they're phrasing it, to how they're articulating these hard, hard, even impossible to describe experiences, we can start to get a sense of that process in action, albeit fragmentary, partial, incomplete. Yeah, the, the book does this in, in a variety of, of really wonderfully illustrative ways, particularly around questions of place, national identity, um and you know you ground this in in a, a couple of different examples using this core case study of the national theater of wales and i wonder if you could kind of sketch um a brief sort of history or or, or story of the national theater of wales to give a sense of why it was quite a good uh, case study and, and why it's a, a particular organization that creates particular kinds of value I found National Theatre Wales fascinating, firstly because of how it connected with really centuries-long debates about the need or otherwise for a national theatre in Wales. So particularly from the start of the 20th century onwards, particularly then, there was this growing sense that National theatre uh, that Wales needed a national theatre for all different kinds of reasons. And the debates about where that national theatre should be situated geographically, how it should operate, should it tour or be fixed, uh, which language it should use, were incredibly fraught and difficult. And largely, this is what I'm suggesting in the book when I'm talking about the history of Wales and how national theatre and national theatre Wales fits into this, what I'm suggesting is that it was particularly difficult because there was no long-standing tradition of theatre in Wales. There is, however, an incredibly rich and diverse performative history that, it, that is, in a sense, embedded in the Welsh culture. For a lot of people, Wales is felt to be this performative nation, but it's not a theatrical nation in the way that we might understand it in terms of plays and playhouses. So there was this openness to what theatre could become but also this sense that what it couldn't be is English because Wales was in the process of resisting the anglicisation of itself and the colonialisation of itself as a nation and it did so as a number of Welsh amazing Welsh historians have argued by performing Welshness as absolutely different from and incompatible from England. And theatre was often felt to be, and national theatre particularly, was often felt to be a natural, a cultural model that was rooted in Englishness. So the question really was, how can we make a national theatre in Wales without colonising ourselves in doing so? And this led, um, in the 1970s, 1980s, to the birth of what many have called the Welsh Golden Age of theatre, the avant-garde, experimental, located, site-specific performative tradition that grew out of a couple of companies that then split off 
in, and form this Welsh theatrical ecology. Lots of people making site-specific located performance that very consciously works with communities and produces work for particular spaces, as opposed to dragging touring shows around the country that sees itself, it's a theatre, a performance um, form that sees itself embedded in location. And then 1990s, this started to slightly break down. And at the same time, National Theatre, the National Theatre Project began again in earnest. There was this call for a real National Theatre. And what NTW did was tap into that existing tradition by saying by building a theatre that was um, based on the National Theatre Scotland model, peripatetic, not building-based. They've got a base camp office in Cardiff, but they work around the country. And their first year was incredibly ambitious. It was 13 shows in 13 different places using different practitioners who had often been connected with the Welsh Golden Age um, time, so with Brith Gore, Mark Rees and Mike Pearson both made shows for the first year. And they also drew on international companies like Rimini Protocol. And they worked with new theatre makers as well. So it was a really rich year. But what each show did in different ways was play around with ideas of place. And that was, as John McGrath, John E. McGrath, the um, now ex-head of uh, artistic director of NTW, he talked in his launch article, Rapid Response, about focusing on places being a way out of that trap of, of instead focusing on what language, identity, history might mean. By starting a place, we can get away from that and also allow us to question not what Wales means, but what Wales means to us. I wonder if you could say a bit more about how that plays out in a very particular place, which uh, Barmouth, um, as you describe it, a small seaside town on the west coast of Wales. Um, and I'm interested to hear about um, the play there, or, well, the theatre performance there. Um, and I guess what kind of value um, NTW generated in that particular place? Sure. That was for Mountain, Sand and Sea was Mark Reese's piece. And he called himself the curator of that event. And when we spoke, he told me about his own position as an avant-garde artist. He wanted to come to Barna and make work that was very much with that community, but also within his remit as an avant-garde artist, as an experimental artist, and those are the words that he used. He spent a really admirable amount of time before the performance for about six months leading up, working with local community groups, introducing himself, talking about the piece he was hoping to make, and also running what he called story shops, meetings at which the local community were invited to come to share their memories, their histories, and also images of Barmouth that would then feed into an existing local archive. So community engagement was at the heart of the preparation stages of the work. And then these Images, history, stories were taken away and used as creative inspiration by Mark and his team of international performance artists for a piece that really took the form of a three-hour walking tour of, of Barmouth. Um, so we were led from the local village hall 
which was about to be renovated, up the hill and then down some steep steps onto the beach, through a, an arcade and into Ghana's only nightclub, through the local Sailors Institute, onto the bridge, encompassing a lot of the town with vignettes of performance happening along the way, most of which were led by the international performance artists, but a few of those vignettes um, featured local volunteers. And what was really interesting about that piece, for audiences particularly, was the way that Barmouth's stories and histories were used. And here was my difficulty as a researcher, because I was aware that Mark Bruce was trying to do a very particular kind of thing with this performance that was tapping into all of these discourses that I've just touched on about located performance, site-specific performance, and the importance in these works of not locking down a single history of place, one single version of place, but leaving a place open, providing fragmentary um, images, snippets of history, and allowing audiences to piece those together to understand, again, not what, what a place means, but what a place, place means to them. And it, first of all, audiences, I think um, 64%, so over two-thirds of audiences, rated the performance excellent. And of the rest, the majority rated it good. So it wasn't possible for me, when I was analysing questionnaires, to compare extremes. There was no excellent versus contingent of people who found it to be very poor that I could compare. But there were, for some people, some hesitations or unease about how the town's stories had been presented. And again, Mark Reese's intention was not to represent Barmer, if such a thing might actually be possible, or to claim to, but instead to invite audiences to engage in this ludic, playful reimagining of the town through theatre. But what I found in some, for some audiences, who particular, for, and particularly for those who came not perceiving themselves to be theatre experts, to borrow a term from one of my respondents, for people who came because it was a story they thought about their town rather than because it was a piece of theatre, very often they just didn't quite know what to do with these things that they were being shown. They weren't sure how they linked to what they already knew about the town. They couldn't draw those connections. And for some people, that was quite troubling. There was, uh, there's one respondent that I talk about in the book quite a lot, Carol, who I interviewed for about an hour. And in that hour, she spoke really passionately about Barmer, as a native feeling herself to be a native of Barmer and not being sure how the, the scenes that she was given represented Barmer or what their significance was in relation to Barmer. She couldn't make those leaps. And I found a, a circling kind of rhetoric in her talk where, and this is what I mean when I say I'm interested in not just what people are saying, but how they're saying it. At one moment she was telling me a really interesting piece of history about the town. And when I expressed interest, she said, you see, we know all these little bits, dot, 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 pause. But nothing came out and they didn't, the theatre, dot, 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 pause. But perhaps it's not them, perhaps it's me, perhaps I've got it wrong. And there were these really interesting tensions between two kinds of knowledge 
theatrical expertise, the sense that this is National Theatre Wales, it's Mark Rees, professional performance artists, they must know what they're doing. They must be trying to do something specific. Perhaps I just don't have the tools or skills or language to be able to understand it. And also the sense that, well, actually, this is my town. These are my stories. They're my histories. I know this place and I'm not seeing it here. So perhaps to some extent, as a native, as a local of Barmouth, I do have the right to criticise. What was what I found so fascinating about Carol is her difficulty in closing that gap. She couldn't complete the criticism of the performance because of the sense that perhaps she might not be the right kind of person to judge. I think this gestures towards one of the tensions that the book grapples with, which is between the kind of uh, aesthetics uh, or perhaps formal aesthetics of theatre and, and participation and I think we might come back to that um, when we consider the conclusion but before that I wonder if you could um, tell me a bit about the kind of contrasts and continuities with the other um, piece of performance that you study in the book the Persians how is that kind of similar and how is it different um, to for uh, mountain sand and sea sure so the Persians was Mike Pearson and Mike Brooks's um, performance. And what was interesting about that before we really knew anything else about it is that we knew it was going to be the earliest European modern recorded drama. So an ancient Greek play, Aeschylus's The Persians, performed on a British military range at a site of very contentious Welsh history, a site of colonial history, really in that the local farming community had been evicted from the site in order to make way for the British army. A British military range in the Welsh hills. And I was interested to see how audiences manage that balancing act. And what I found is that, first of all, the tickets sold out incredibly quickly, largely because they had been advertised as part of Theatre Hyniog in Brecon's local... Um, at the local theatre, which was also the box office for this piece, in their, in their brochure. And people had gone along months beforehand and bought tickets for the things that they fancied. And there was really, for a lot of the people I spoke with, there was this excitement at being able to access this usually inaccessible site. What I also found is that 80% of the people who attended rated that performance excellent, so a really high degree of positivity. And the responses for this tended to be a lot less mixed. So people talking about delight at this exceptional experience. And also very interestingly, one of the questions that my questionnaire asked was for people to choose up to three orientations, reasons for attending the event with a box with an opportunity to add their own if they weren't, didn't feel that they could be put into these categories. And I'd love to talk at length about the methodological choices here, but I'm afraid I can't, um, given time constraints. But what's really important about this to note is that in order to make sense of questionnaire data, you have to be able to identify patterns. So these quantitative questions are important. But critically, the design of um, my study I see it as a quali-quant design following Martin Barker's work in audience research. And what that does is it asks audiences to take up these orientations, but then it allows them to explain them. 
same with the ratings of performance. So audiences rating the performance excellent, I then asked them to fill out a box that said, why did you choose this rating? Because really, by themselves, this data is meaningless. My excellent could be your poor. What interests me is the value judgments people are drawing on and the senses of self and identity and nation and community that they're taking up in order to make sense of these performances. What I found is that people, about half of the respondents for this performance thought of themselves as theatre lovers. They came because of a pre-existing love of theatre. And they tended to talk about the event in incredibly positive terms because of its relevance not to Wales itself or to Bracken or to that place, as with some of my Ferment and Sun and Sea respondents, but because it was relevant to them as people, to a wider sense of universal humanity. I'm interested. I mean, it, it, it's sort of hard to uh, hard to phrase the question about um, what the problem might be between um, these two versions of engagement. Um, on the one hand, we have, I suppose, a more dare I say it, kind of traditional um, arts audience response, as you say, of kind of you know not about place, more about. Um, their engagement with the aesthetic and their sense of themselves as people. But then on the other hand, we have a very, you know, kind of rooted, um, bounded and more uh, cautious um, sense of engagement. And this comes back to that tension, I think, between aesthetics and participation, but also uh, addresses something that you get to grips with in the conclusion of the book, which is this idea about there being barriers to engagement in theatre, and, and quite provocatively, I, I wonder, you know, what might those barriers be and how can we change them or should we change them actually? That's, I think, the million dollar question. And I think what surprised me most when I started this research about seven years ago now is... The number of times when at conferences or events or just talking to people about my findings, I get asked, well, what are we supposed to do now? And there's a real sense that it's my duty as a researcher to take an interventionist approach. But actually, I think that that's one of the things that the Cultural Value Project, the HRC Cultural Value Project, the Everyday Participation Project, is trying to break us away from, the sense that audience research is necessarily advocacy research, that the value of this research is that it's finding things that are going to better help us to sell shows to audiences or perhaps even to make better shows. And that's where, from theatre makers particularly, the worry sets in. And I have to say now that that's not what I'm interested in doing. And also, I don't think that that's necessarily what I'm finding, although it does raise some interesting questions. So there are particular models about what it means to make good theatre, what counts as good theatre, that potentially are, in a sense, problematic because they're coming from a particular set of discourses which are absolutely embedded in existing power structures. Um, so when Carol 
suggested that she thought that National Theatre Wales in Barmouth were going to come in and they were going to make a performance about local people, people from history who she knew, and they were going to play those stories back to her in understandable ways. I had two parallel thoughts. The first was that, well, if they did that, they would be critically panned. And of course, for any new theatre company, in order to get money, it's really important to say we are aesthetically worthwhile. But the other thought that I had is, well, why shouldn't Carol and people like her receive that kind of performance? And that's a particularly interesting question when it comes to national theatre. Who is this national theatre making work for? And it's also really important to point out that NTW's first show was called A Good Night Out in the Valleys, which was definitely employing populist models of theatre making and had perhaps slightly more of a lukewarm reception than something like The Persians, which was made using a a different model of what good theatre means. So these things are absolutely in tension, but really at the heart of it, I'm not interested in having my work used to make audiences different shows. And in fact, there was a sense for people like Carol that it, she wasn't trying to argue that the show itself was bad. In fact, she was very careful not to assign blame. She was assigning blame to anyone, it was to her. But there was this barrier to taking part that we tend, when we're, when we're making located performance, particularly work that's not in theatres, to pretend doesn't exist anymore because it's a show about a place and it takes place in that space and people don't have to cross the literal threshold of a theatre building and yet they still have to make that conceptual leap. And what I found is that it's still a really risky thing for audiences who feel like this kind of theatre isn't for them. And again, that's not to say that theatre should be made differently. In fact, what Carol potentially wanted was to know what she was meant to do with these stories. So to know a little bit more about how she was meant to be orienting herself, not necessarily to have a different show made for her. This might sound strange, but are are you optimistic about the future of something like National Theatre Wales and its its ability to, I suppose, navigate these tensions. Obviously, the English model of a national theatre is a large building, um, you know, that has various modes of delivery, but, you know, is very much a kind of a presence in London, the nation's capital. Um, And I wonder, you know, is there something of the kind of the model of National Theatre Wales that uh, maybe can navigate these tensions a little bit um, better or... um, can address these issues um, in a in a more productive way. Well, definitely, we're waiting to see what the new artistic director of National Theatre Wales is going to do, and I'm really excited to see that. Um, working with John McGrath was was great because John, when I presented my findings, honestly, I went home and I kind of waited for the trouble to hit when I told him that it was going to be a book. And in the end, he agreed to write a foreword that clarified this position because there was a real openness there, I think, to listening to audiences. And it's very difficult because because arts companies have to get funding 
And in order to get funding, they have to show that they are having positive impacts on people. And that's what, where advocacy research comes in, because researchers are asked to, or certainly at least guided, to draw out those things that people liked or got in positive ways out of experiences. And also there is um, a positivity bias anyway. It's very hard. It's much harder to get people to talk negatively than it is to get them to talk positively. We know that. That's one of the challenges with this kind of research. And yet, when people feel like perhaps they shouldn't say certain things, they shouldn't raise certain niggles or worries, what I found is that people actually disconfirm themselves saying, my responses probably don't count, and therefore I'm probably not the right person to come again. So National Theatre Wales' challenge, once I'd presented my research, was to think about what they wanted to do with it. And that was quite timely, actually, as Mark Bruce was um, preparing his next show at that time, which was about Dylan Thomas, and very much structured around the same kind of form, a, a guided walking tour. And in the end, I think they decided not to necessarily do anything different aesthetically, but instead to think about how they can frame audiences' experiences. To say, look, we're hoping you'll come here and play with us. We're not, we don't want to represent your town for us, and it would be ethically problematic, in fact, if we tried to do that for you. But instead, just come and play with us. These fragments of history and memory and images connected with this place that we found, play around with, with them, with us. But when we don't do that, when we say, these aren't our audience, they, they're not the right kind of person for us, or they didn't get it, what we're doing is feeding into that sense that there are good people and bad people, and that the, the bad audiences really shouldn't come, they, they shouldn't be part. If they can't engage in the right way, then they shouldn't come at all. And that's not something we're telling them, but it's definitely something some audiences are feeling. This thing isn't for me. In terms of your own work, um, are you kind of carry on pursuing these almost impossible to uh, to resolve questions, or have you moved in a in a different direction away from um, the, this question of kind of locating the audience? I'm a glutton for punishment, so my new project, which is um, I'm so lucky to be funded for three years by the British Academy. I am going to be, I've just started, exploring these questions in relation to Bristol Old Vic. A very different case study in some ways in that it's um, just celebrated its 250th anniversary as the oldest, longest continuously running theatre in Europe. And it's a building. And it's really important that it's got this kind of heritage behind the bricks and mortar. So what I'm doing here is extending the inquiry that I started with National Theatre Wales into this new place for me, Bristol, and regional um, theatre audiences. And to ask actually what it means to be a regional theatre audience what, and to be a regional theatre. What are the connections between this city and this theatre and London in that it's got a particularly um, acutely London-based heritage being a, initially a spin-off from the London Old Vic and how those negotiations uh, and relationships evolved from the company Bristol Old Vic's launch in 1946 working in the archives through to the present day 
So I am going to be quite uniquely, I hope, combining archival and empirical methodologies to show, to, to trace out what I'm calling a trajectory of value from past to present in order to look at how the city's communities and the region's communities understand the role of the theatre and a theatre in their lives. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Kirsty Satchman about her new book, Locating the Audience, How People Found Value in National